Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When it comes to the Christian life, sometimes it's very helpful to actually define what it is for an individual. And different people have different ideas concerning what their Christian life is actually about, what it really means. It means something different to everyone. You just simply have to ask. Just ask people, what does the Christian life mean to you? What does it mean to have a relationship with God? What what does that really mean to you, and how is that experienced in your daily life? What is that really about, and how could we really define it? For many people, the Christian life is about trying to find some way to improve their life here on earth. And I can appreciate that. I certainly can appreciate that and value that, that I would expect my life to be improved. Being a Christian, being someone who knows the living God, I certainly would expect that to be the case to some degree. But for others, what this really means is something different than what I'm talking about. For others, this means something entirely different. In fact, it means that they're trying to find some way to improve their quality of life, as can be measured by what benefits they can receive in their flesh, by what they can experience in their flesh in a greater way, by having more food to eat or better quality of food to eat or having more things that they can do or having more money at their disposal, being able to lend more money to other people and subsequently live off of the interest that they collect, just as an example. And I certainly don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with that. What I mean to say is that people are looking at their Christian life as an opportunity to indulge their flesh, that that's what it actually means to many people. Unfortunately, most people are not willing to say that. You often have to ask them questions and pay close attention to their answers to actually find out what they really value and what they really hope to obtain. Or in other cases, you find out what they are complaining about or what they are disappointed in, what their disappointments are, and that that will tell you what their expectations were. And their expectations are often reflected in their disappointments, with their dissatisfaction, and with their depression as a result of that. And that tells you what they were really expecting from their God. And considering that they didn't get it, that tells you, again, what is really important to them and what they really value. But when people consider the Christian life and try to think about what does it really mean and what are the real advantages of it, sometimes people will refer to the blessings of God or the promises of God, saying that your Christian life is to be a life of discovering, experiencing, and applying the blessings and the promises of God in your life. And I can appreciate that in a certain way. I mean, I can understand that in a certain way. It depends on what a person actually means behind that. What do they really intend to say? Now, I believe that there are two ways to go concerning this, that one has to do with the issues concerning the flesh, and what I mean by that is how your flesh can be benefited or how you can profit in your flesh, and the other issues has to do with your heart, has to do with your spirit, has to do with your being, has to do with your peace and joy 
in the innermost part of who you are, as opposed to the outward issues concerning who you are and how you relate to or interact with the world that you're a part of, that these are the two different perspectives that quite often are undefined when people use these terms, this terminology concerning blessings or promises. So you have to wait a little while, but it normally doesn't take very long. You have to wait until a person directs themselves or directs others in a certain way so that you can have a better appreciation for that. And this is how it usually shows up. What you do is you wait patiently to determine if the person is turning to the Old Testament in the Scriptures or they are turning to the New Testament in the Scriptures. Are they turning to the Old Covenant to try to identify the blessings and promises that perhaps they can now appropriate? Or are they turning to the New Covenant to gain an understanding of the promises and the blessings that they have received as a result of what Christ Jesus already did? Now, this division, I believe, should take place at the point where Jesus died and rose from the dead. It's my opinion that that's where the division should actually take place. And so if you were to consider the Gospels as being a part of the Old Covenant because the New Covenant didn't really go into effect until after Jesus died and rose from the dead, if you were to consider the Gospels to be part of the Old Testament Scriptures, then you could look at those as well in this context, especially because the Lord Jesus was proclaiming, he was teaching the Old Covenant. He was proclaiming the New in the sense that it was about to go into effect, but it was not in effect during the time that he was alive conducting his ministry here on earth. And so that is what people are doing. What you need to identify is where are they going in the scriptures to try to identify the promises and blessings. And, you know, there's been a lot of books that have been written on this subject as well. As an example, if you were to take some of these books that people have written concerning the promises of God or the promises for a Christian or the blessings that a Christian can receive, if you were to go into one of these books and look at the table of contents, and try to identify perhaps a scripture index as well, what scriptures are they referencing. If you see the greater emphasis on the Old Testament, then that can tell you that that really is what they are intending to say, what they're wanting to say, and that is that all of the promises and all the blessings that were offered to the nation of Israel are things that you can now experience, that you can now embrace, that you can now profit from today. Now, I don't want to give the impression that the Lord will not do any of those things in a Christian's life. I don't want to give that impression. But to assume that he is obligated to, to make that kind of an assumption, I think is a false assumption. And I don't want to give the impression that that's what I believe. Now, when you look at the promises and the blessings that are described in the New Covenant on the basis of what Jesus has already done, they are very distinct. They are very different. And in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8, the writer says explicitly that these promises are not the same. They are not the same promises as were given in the Old Covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, it is written, But now he has obtained, referring to the Lord Jesus, Now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. These are different promises. This is a different covenant that is a better covenant based on and enacted upon better promises. This is important to identify. Now, how could we really describe the differences between the two? There needs to be some definitive way to say that something is better than something else on the basis of what it really is, on the basis of how we would define it. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize it as best I can. And that is to say 
that the Old Covenant promises, the Old Covenant blessings, they all have to do with the issues concerning a person's flesh. They all have to do with whether or not you are going to win at war, or whether or not you are going to prosper financially, or whether or not you're going to prosper by having more children, or or something else. That all of the promises, all of the blessings, has to do with your flesh and with your life that you have here on earth. And that virtually none of them have any application in the kingdom of heaven or in your life that is to come. In comparison, the new covenant blessings, the new covenant promises, all have to do with the issues of your heart, all have to do with the issues of your spirit, of your inner being, of your relationship. They have to do with your relationship with your God. They have to do with actually knowing your God and experiencing him for who he is. And I believe that this is where the division is between that which is not better and that which is better between that which is the Old Covenant and that which is the New Covenant, and that the New Covenant is much better. But unfortunately, for the most part, many Christians today, many people today, still live or try to live on the basis of the Old Covenant. And the reason why is because I don't think they truly want that which is available through the New Covenant. I don't think that they really want what is available through the New Covenant, that they would prefer to have that which is available through the Old. And with that preference, the Lord is accommodating that. He has made an accommodation for that by making it possible for people to have a covenant. He has made this possible by giving the old covenant through Moses. He has given them a copy of the tabernacle in heaven. He has given them a shadow of the real things that he has, the real things of who he is. He has provided them with something that is not real so that they can have that as an alternative to turning to those things that are real. And the choice that people make is their choice. He has given us the opportunity to choose. And through that, there are many people, in fact, most people, have chosen those things that are not real, those things that are at best shadows and copies They have chosen those things over those things that are real, that are the real things, the real God, who they can get to know. You know, one thing that I really appreciate about my God is that when he gave the Old Covenant, he said nothing about knowing who he is. I appreciate that. I'm thankful for that. I understand that. Because for the most part, many people do not really want to know who he is. They would prefer to have opportunities to indulge their flesh, which has to do with the promises and the blessings according to a person's flesh. I appreciate that. I value that, that my God has made a provision for those who really don't want to know him. He has given them a way of life. He has given them a way of living. He has at least given them something. And through that, if a person will pursue it with full enthusiasm, If a person will pursue it with the greatest intent, it will eventually lead them to the point of depression and despair, which I believe they should reach so that they can turn to him for who he actually is, if they would be willing to do that. But unfortunately, I don't see that many people are really interested in who he is. But those are the promises and blessings according to the Old Covenant, that through those you would have no opportunity really to know your God. He never said that. He never hinted at it. He never promised it. But what's better about the New Covenant and what is better about the promises that the New Covenant has been built on 
and the promises that we now live in according to what he has done, what is so much better about those is that we have an opportunity to actually know our God. The promise that he made, the real promise, the big promise, was that he would eventually forgive our sins and he would no longer hold our sins against us anymore. And that we would then have an opportunity to actually know him for who he is. This is the true promise, the promise of the giving of the Messiah that has now been fulfilled. And on the foundation of this promise, so many other promises have been revealed in light of that. So many other things have been given to us. He has now given himself to us, and that is the summary of what we have been given and the promises that have been given to us and the blessings that have been given to us. The summary of that is that we now have our God, whereas in accordance with the Old Covenant, you could never have your God. You could be a people perhaps identified with the living God, but that identification has nothing to do with having a relationship with him. It has to do with your trying to live in obedience to something that you can't. And when you try to do that, it should be quite obvious that there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with God, and there's nothing wrong with the commandments. There's nothing wrong with the Old Covenant. There's nothing wrong with the promises or the blessings that were offered. What's wrong is you. That's what's wrong. You have a problem. And your problem is that you're spiritually dead and you need to be resurrected from the dead. You need to be made alive. That's your problem. You have sin that needs to be forgiven and you're dead and you need to be resurrected. That was what the Old Covenant was given for. But what we have now, the better promises that we have now, enacted on the better promises... The better promise was, of course, first the Lord Jesus enacted upon him is now all that we need for life and godliness. As it is written, we now have everything that we need for life and godliness. He has given to us every blessing in heavenly places, which means that he has left nothing out. And if you have all that you need for life and for godliness, there's nothing left. There's nothing else that you can possibly have an interest in. Nothing else that you can truly need. Nothing else that he should bother promising. Now, he may give many other things, but they're not based on the fact that he's promised anything to you. They are based on the reality that you are in this world that he is actively participating in, just as you are actively participating in. And together, we may experience with our God some of the benefits of being here on this earth. And I can certainly appreciate those things when they are revealed. Continuing in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. This is Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. It is written, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Do you understand that? If the first covenant had been faultless, that's Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. That means that the first covenant had fault, that there was something wrong, that there was something incomplete. It was not faultless. It was faulty. Why? Not because there was something wrong with it, but because there was something wrong with us. In that sense, it was incomplete. It would not address the issues that were of importance. It would not address the concerns that we truly had. In that sense, it was faulty. In that sense. But there was an occasion sought for a second, which is not the first. It is different. They are not the same. They have to be different, otherwise there's no way to say that there was a second, that there was one that was faulty, that there's another one that is faultless. There's no way to say that. You have to identify and recognize 
that the two covenants are completely distinct. They are not the same. And so if what you believe is the new covenant looks anything like the old, it definitely is not the new. If what you believe is the new covenant looks anything like the first covenant, then what you have is not the second covenant. They are very different. Continuing in verse 8, For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day. And then he continues then. But let me go back to the beginning of verse 8. In verse 8, this is Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, for finding fault with them. That's what's faulty. What's faulty is that the old covenant could not address your faults. It could not deal with your faults. It could not deal with the problem at hand. That's why it was faulty. There was no way, it was not possible for the old covenant to deal with the true real issues, and that's where it was faulty. So why would the Lord invoke a covenant that was faulty? Why would he do that? He did that, again, so that he could show that there was something wrong with us. On that basis, it is not faulty. On that basis, it is faultless. On that basis, the law as it was given through Moses, the Old Covenant, is truly perfect. There is nothing wrong with it at all, as long as you understand what it was given for. And that's the issue, is that for the most part, people do not understand what it was given for. The Old Covenant was given for several purposes. The first purpose that I believe we should recognize that the Old Covenant was given for, the First Covenant was given for, was to first show you that you were faulty, that there is something wrong with you. And the way that it accomplishes this is it sets up a standard that you get to try to live by. And if you fail with regards to any part of this standard, then the law has done its perfect work in showing you how faulty you truly are. It does other things, and that is that if you don't recognize... If you don't understand that you are faulty, it will stir some more faults up within you. And there are several ways that it accomplishes this. The first way that it accomplishes this is by first giving you some things to think about doing that you probably would have never thought doing to begin with. Paul used the example of coveting where he said that he would have not known what it was to truly covet until he embraced the law of do not covet. And when he embraced that law, it stirred up within him every covetous desire, as he put it. And so in that context, the law actually stirs up some more sin in your life. Now, if you feel you have found some way to live in obedience to the commandments, now you have a new kind of sin, and that is religious pride. That You now have religious pride within you because you believe that you have succeeded, whereas in reality, you truly haven't. You may have convinced yourself but that doesn't mean you're going to impress God. There's also the natural rebellion of humanity, and this is the third way that the law can stir up more sin in a person's life. First, to give you more things to think about. Second, to stir up some more religious pride within you. Third, just simply the natural rebellion of humanity, where we say, don't be telling me what to do. If you want to tell me not to do something, I'm going to do it anyway, just to show you that I am in charge in my own life. And some people respond that way, certainly not everyone. 
But then there's another way. There's a fourth way that the law can stir up some more sin, can show you how faulty you truly are, and can stir up some more faults within you. There is another way, and that is that it keeps you from actually embracing the love and acceptance of God. And it does this because if you can never obtain the righteousness, the right standing before you and your God that you truly need, if you're not fully obedient to the commandments, then you have to recognize that you are not fully obedient to the commandments, that you are sinning, and your God is probably ashamed of you. He is embarrassed by you. He certainly doesn't love you as much as he might love somebody else who can be more obedient than you can be. And so because of that, you are separated from the love of God. You are separated from your God through your disobedience, through your sin. Your sin separates you from God, according to the Old Covenant. Your sin does that. And so if you cannot embrace his love for you, then what are you going to do when you want to be loved? If you cannot embrace his acceptance for you, then what are you going to do when you cannot embrace his acceptance of you? Well, you have to turn to sin. That's all you've got. You have to turn to the world where the world advertises all kinds of sins that you can commit so that you can feel as though somebody loves you, so that you can perhaps feel as though somebody accepts you. That's another way that the law stirs up more sin in your life and reveals how faulty you truly are. And so if we look at the law from that context, it certainly is wonderful. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But if you look at it from the context or for the purpose of really resolving the issues between you and your God so that you can have a relationship with him, it is totally faulty. It does not do that. It does not accomplish that. And so it's when people believe that the old covenant or the first covenant, when people believe that that covenant and the promises thereof provide you with a way to actually know your God, when people believe that, then it is faulty. It is because of a false belief. And the Hebrews believed that. The Hebrews who the writer was writing to at that time, that's what they believed. They believed that they could have a relationship with their God through the Old Covenant, and that was a faulty belief. And so on that basis, the covenant was faulty because they weren't looking at it for the purpose that the Lord gave it. Now, the Lord gave the law for other purposes as well. He gave it in order to present within and through it the foreshadowings and the prophecies concerning who the Messiah would be, what he would come to accomplish, how he would come to accomplish, what he came to accomplish. There is a lot contained within the law, within the Old Covenant, that we have that is of great substantial value, that is perfect, that is not faulty, if we will use it for the purpose that our God gave it for. And that is another way that we can use it, is to use it from the perspective of having an understanding concerning how he would accomplish the salvation that we now have today. For example, the laws concerning Passover, the Day of Atonement, the laws concerning trials, the laws concerning witnesses and testimonies, things like that. The law has many things embedded within it that the Lord has used in order to accomplish the salvation that we have. And I've done a tremendous amount of work concerning this. Most of the work that I have done that addresses the ministry of the Messiah, the ministry of the Lord Jesus, reveals a lot of how the Old Covenant was used in order to reveal the truths that the Lord Jesus came to reveal so that we can know him for who he is 
and understand the salvation that he has now offered to us so that we can embrace that, so that we can now walk in accordance with another covenant, a better covenant, the new covenant, so that we can live in the reality of what our God has given to us today. Again, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, it is written, For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now let me say at the end of verse 13 where it says, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear, he did make the first covenant obsolete. As he says there, he has made the first obsolete. That is true. The old covenant is now obsolete. It's obsolete in a certain sense. It is not obsolete in another sense. Let me put it to you this way. The reasons why the Lord gave the old covenant are still in effect, are still of a value. If you want some more sin in your life, embrace the old covenant. If you want to be separated from your God, then embrace the old covenant. If you want to be further separated from him and have more sin in your life, then that's what it's good for. If you want to embrace the old covenant, that's what you're going to get. But for those who have been resurrected from the dead, for those who have embraced the Messiah for who he is, it is obsolete. It is now ready to disappear. I mean, in my own life, it has no place. The Old Covenant has no place in my life right now. I mean, I certainly study it, I read it, I enjoy it, but I use it for the purposes that he gave it for, so that I can have a greater appreciation for the salvation that I have right now, and I can see how he accomplished the salvation that I have right now. But for the unbeliever, it is not yet obsolete, because it can still be applied in their lives to bring them to Christ. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net 